Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And today is a, a very special treat because this is not a way that popular culture or film portrays nuclear weapons in a nonsensical way. Uh, this way is the way that we always hope uh, people will treat something with the level of uh, accuracy, the level of you know respect, and the hope that people will learn out of this that we hope in all of our movies here. So I'm joined over Zoom with Nick Lyell, uh, who is a storyteller, activist, and the director of the 2021 documentary False Alarm, which tells the frighteningly real-life story about, you know, that time in 2018 when millions of people in Hawaii thought there was an incoming nuclear weapon on a ballistic missile launched and they had, you know, minutes to live. Fortunately, this was just a false alarm sent over the state's emergency alert system, yeah, but it didn't, you know, do anything less for the dread that many people felt through this 38-minute period, which is very much captured so excellently in this documentary. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that you thought I made some sense of the chaos of that moment <laughs> it was intense and i think you brought your you know director experience you know, your producer editing experience to this you're a, a several time award-winning you know fiction and non-fiction storyteller your work has been deployed in political ads and national advocacy campaigns and i think this film is is getting a great amount of recognition for its work I, you had a great list here of the variety of different festivals that it's been at anything from the toronto independent film festival of kift and hollywood new directors and the wisconsin film festival in, any of those you're particularly uh, excited about or that or you're happy that uh, you're able to kind of be a part of yeah well i'm from wisconsin so i was very excited to make it into the wisconsin film festival and have some people back from back home be able to go and see it i also enjoyed going to the zeitgeist film festival out in LA. So that was a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie yet, and before we get into the to the questions I have about, you know, the documentary, the people you were able to interview, you know, your take on this chaotic uh, 38 minute period in 2018. The reason why we're chatting right now, um, other than just, you know, I've been wanting to chat to, with you about this for a while is, you know, for the month of November 2021. So this will be released uh, early part of November. Uh, but for anyone who's listening to it in December or later, um, too late. Uh, there's November. You can actually download this for streaming on Vimeo On Demand, the movie False Alarm. I'm sure there'll be other ways that people can get access to it after November. But um, if you are listening to this in the month of November 2021, go to falsealarmfilm.com and search for it on Vimeo. Uh, any other any other details that I want to make sure that people need to know about in order so they can actually watch this based on our discussion here? Yeah, I'm excited to find some other places that it could be streaming and available soon. But for now, it's just available for that one month only on Vimeo On Demand. So I hope people get a chance to enjoy it. Available for purchase. So if you purchase it in November, you can watch it in December if you'd like. <laughs> Great. And um, whenever we do find those other ways that people can, can watch it, I'll certainly update the show notes. So if it, someone is listening to this uh, you know, a year from now, we'll find many ways that they can dive into the types of things we're going to talk about here. I guess, spoiler warning, you know, for the idea that this happened. Saturday morning, I was asleep. I was sleeping in. Just kind of like lazily getting ready. I was FaceTiming a friend of mine. All of a sudden, everybody's phone went off. Incoming ballistic missile threat inbound. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. I don't, I, I don't see anybody. I don't hear anything. We're going back in the closet. I, I just, I, I was in a sense of disbelief. And then people just started running, running really fast put them in the bathtub 
and told them to say their prayers. The fear became anger. They wanted it to just disappear. There's conjecture that it was intentional. Like, this is the sickest joke to ever play on a state, on a people. There's a whole state that thought they were going to die. The missile alert was like pulling the curtain aside. This trend of increasing military might started way before the missile crisis and is continuing way afterwards. So the only way that they can do it and justify that is to build up this boogeyman, this terror, this fear. Um, and this is happening in a global way. I wouldn't have believed it so hard if it wasn't the time that we are in now. Why are we in this situation? What brought us to this point um, in, a, in the human timeline where something like this could happen? And whose fault really is that? You might see a tragedy on the news and uh, you see it, you chew on it for a little while and you say, that, oh God, that's terrible. And then you just go on. Hello, we almost got bombed over here. Like we need to talk about it. <laughs> you can't forget and move on. You need to learn, adapt, implement new policy. We have to massively and radically transform. And in the process, we have to have the courage to love our peoples and lands enough to believe in a future in which we will not be destroyed. I'd like to ask you, you know, you clearly did a lot of research and looked into what happened. This is the, the craziest part to me is 8.07 a.m., barely be able to function sometimes at that time of day. And people on, on January 13th in, in 2018 in Hawaii, you know, received this notification on their on their phones and or radio programs. I think at one point I saw that it was interrupted like a basketball game. We got into this a little bit. We did a, a podcast episode on the movie Ladybug, Ladybug, which is a really interesting 1963 black and white movie where we don't into it but that was like the week it happened clearly a lot more information has come out since then and with your documentary you want to set the stage for us a little bit about kind of what your take on this story on kind of what happened and some of the research that you and your team did for the for the film yeah i'd love to i think one of the hard things to remember is just how high the tensions were at the time i think it'd be easy to kind of look back in the current lens and see something like this and assume it was fake but you know, at the time, and I mentioned this in the film, the New York Times was writing articles about in the invasion plans for North Korea. There was an interactive um, website that let you play out how many casualties you could create through, you know, a non-nuclear conflict in North Korea. Hmm. So this really seemed pretty imminent. At the same time, Trump and Kim Jong-un were having their little Twitter tiff for everyone to see. And in Hawaii, of course, you know, there's a history of Pearl Harbor that is memorialized there. But also, you know, there's a sense that there's a large military presence that this island is kind of a, a fortification for the U.S. military. And it's the closest thing to North Korea. So I think there's there's a real sensibility that at the time that something really big could happen. I don't think anybody expected this to happen, but it made it much, much more believable when it did. You know, I, th I think another thing to keep in mind is Trump as a president <laughs> and his national security advisors. It, you know, at the time, nobody really knew how far these guys were willing to go. And, you know, they were mostly guys. 
there was a real uncertainty and a real fear in the air before this alert even happened. And then, of course, yeah, people woke up uh, most of the time woke up because it was 8.07 a.m., like you said. It was a Saturday, so a lot of people were sleeping in, and there was uh, honestly less chaos than you might expect from something like this. As far as I know, there weren't any traffic, like major traffic accidents or or deaths um, from that, despite, I'm sure, people driving a, a lot faster than they would normally. No real signs of looting or people you know, getting into violent confrontations over space or resources, aside from just a general sense of fear, the major emotion that people were feeling and thought people were having was just kind of a confusion and uncertainty. This was something nuclear weapons and nuclear war and a a nuclear attack, even just any military attack on US soil is just so outside the realm of our reality and, and seeming possibility that I think most people just didn't know what to do. And of course, I mean, there's lots of research showing that in disaster situations, people generally become the best versions of themselves and, you know, support each other and and bring each other in. So I think there was a lot of all of that happening. And a lot of other people just didn't believe it. There was such a mixed range of reactions from different people, which is part of what I think attracted me to kind of make this film in the first place. It is almost comical it's the kind of thing you would read in uh in a you think it's an onion article headline but you know the text that everyone received on their phone uh, that was i guess i i know generally how emergency broadcast systems work because i've been researching it um it used to be you know there was the connell rad uh process of it on the radio you would turn ask to turn your, your dial to connell rad and they would tell you uh what was going on and usually you get a few minutes before your bombers uh from the other side were coming in and dropping something on your head and it seems weird now that it's like, oh, the same thing that I get for like an Amber Alert or a message that there's a flood warning or something would be the same thing that would be telling me that, you know, the text literally said, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. It seems weird that that would be the message that you would get on your phone when a right between 20% off on overstock.com and the text from your friend last night that said, wasn't that crazy? It's it's weird juxtaposition. And I really, one of the things I loved about the documentary was you got a really great mix of people that you had a chance to talk to an interview. Um, you, you talked to a, a physician um, who was also an activist um, for uh, people in Hawaii, you know, born and raised there for a long period of time and the ways that they were largely mistreated by the, the U.S. military and others. In their take on this, you had a state representative that talked about the, from the policy perspective and the constituents that were concerned and the staff and also just family and tourists that were there. How did you find some of these these individuals and how did you kind of make a choice to, to highlight the particular stories uh, that you did? Because it really is a great mix of people's reactions. Maybe which of those maybe surprised you the most? Yeah, it was pretty easy, honestly. I think that's one of the things that attracted me to this story one of the first rules of documentary filmmaking is access, right? So you might think you could make a wonderful film about Brad Pitt, but unless you know him or have great access to some Brad Pitt archive, uh, you're going to have trouble telling that story. And, you know, so the rule of film is film what you know, who you know, what's around you already, what you have access to. You know, the great thing about, well, the great thing about this horrible, (laughs) horrible event (laughs) that happened is that it happened to everyone in Hawaii at the time. So you know, I went to Hawaii with some interviews already booked, having done a lot of research about the event, the questions I wanted to ask, maybe, you know, some ideas about the kinds of perspectives that I wanted to capture. And some of the interviews just came from, you know, talking to people in coffee shops 
and restaurants and parks and other places that I was when I was in, on location in Oahu and around the island. Finding people who wanted to talk about this event was not particularly challenging. The real hard thing was getting video of the event itself. I mean, unless you're a, a vlogger, <laughs> there there's not a lot of people whose first instinct in that kind of moment is to turn on the camera, turn it on themselves, turn it on what's happening around them. That was a real, real challenge for the film. And as far as like who I chose for, for the roles and the perspectives, uh, I, did ki- I did want to avoid those vloggers. I thought that one of the powerful things about this story is that it happened to everybody. And so I, I wanted, wanted to avoid people who had like a public persona to maintain or kind of a, you know, practice in front of the camera. Um, and so I tried to interview people in, in a bunch of different positions in society in relation to the military, in relation to the Hawaii, the Hawaii Emergency Management Authority. I have a, a state representative, a mother, tourists, indigenous Hawaiian woman, someone involved in the military, a counselor slash healer, a father, people who had varying levels of expertise on North Korea and the geopolitical situation. And most of the people in the film occupy, you know, more than one of those roles. And I think that adds a lot of interest and complexity to each of their stories in the film. One of the things I really loved about the film is it it didn't spend all of its time on here's what happened and here's the technical issues and you know why this button was pushed instead of another but it's a really interesting story apparently the individual according to their deposition or their their testimony they thought someone was telling them that this was not a drill because when someone said it was a drill uh maybe it was miscommunicated um there was like a situation where According to one news report I saw that when they were saying it was not a drill was when their colleague was putting the phone on speakerphone. So like it got garbled and the individual said, okay, well, I guess I got to send this out and, and sent it out. But you don't necessarily spend the, the TikTok of all that because what really matters a lot, particularly I think the people in, in the field that, that I work in, the nonproliferation field, and I think you as someone who is a storyteller is, well, what are people's reactions to this? What do they take away from this experience? Because you know, in, in a lot of um, the movies that we cover on this podcast or TV, sometimes you have a film where someone experiences something like this, something changes, you know, in the, in the nice act three resolution. Oh, I guess when we live through this false alarm or something, we decided to pull back the, the advancing nuclear modernization or arms race. In other ones, it's not a thing at all. It's just a, kind of a flash in the pan, I guess, it's just kind of the price of, of doing business. That's the fascinating story. What, what is, what was, your, are you surprised by the reaction, you know, two or three years later that this didn't seem to shake up stuff? Or maybe it did in some places that you did see. Yeah, I definitely think that the film has a different resonance in some ways after or during COVID and the Mm. pandemic, you know, there was a scene in the film that was very powerful to me at the time where state representative Lopresti talks about sitting, you know, around the house with his kids after the alert and his kids were playing a game called shelter in place. And that, that felt really sort of surprising and, and wow, like how powerful now, of course, you know, shelter in place is kind of common part of our of our lexicon and mm-hmm. and uh it has a different resonance i don't think it's necessarily less powerful but i think it draws out some connections to the current moment that this false alarm maybe represents or has some ties to that i didn't necessarily get to explore in the film itself you do have to stop telling the sto- telling a story sometime mm-hmm. but i think that there's a lot of resonance there in terms of you know the failure of the state and the national government 
to deliver on essential service of public safety and public health. Thinking about kind of your your earlier question about you know what actually happened, uh, you're right. I definitely didn't didn't focus much on the on the sort of button pusher there's, aspect of things. There's uh, there's all kinds of articles and stories and stuff that you could read about that. Yeah. To be honest, I still don't. I'm not certain what happened. It seems to me like it was a genuine accident, with or without some culpability on the person's part, but certainly also culpability in the system. I mean, I show in the film an actual screenshot of the of the interface Hawaii Emergency Management Authority was using and it looks like a text document with some links in it blue underlined links you know and it's one it says test and one says the real thing it seems ripe <laughs> for a possible accident you know like you said about the speakerphone they say test 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 and then they say to launch his thing and they finish with test 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 so could he have missed that it seems possible some people have come forward and said that this individual had a history of kind of mishearing or misinterpreting and his own story has been pretty inconsistent at one point he said at first he said it was an accident later I think he said he did it on purpose after that he changed Mm. back to something else there's complexities in terms of like the legal culpability that he might be facing or trying from losing his job over it and other things so it's hard to get at what actually happened you know, my my take is it was probably a genuine accident. You know, as far as the film's concerned, I really tried to touch on it, but stay away from the details of the actual incident. I took some inspiration from a film that I had seen, you know, recently before starting it uh, called Casting Jean Benet. It poses this central question to the whole film is like, who killed Jean Benet and how did it happen? And then it spends the rest of the film, you know, essentially uninterested in, in answering that question. But interested in the kind of the fear and the doubt and the myth around this event that happened. And so, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily interested in myth around the false alarm. I, I went there two months after. I don't think it was quite in the in the myth category, but huh. definitely interested in the in the uncertainty, the doubt, the fear, the courage, and those reactions that that happened around the event. And I think particularly in the later half of the film, interested in a sort of politicization of the event or not Uh and how people process that trauma either as an individual maybe getting mad at an individual like the button pusher or as a as a social process and getting mad at the government or the president or the state of nuclear mutually assured destruction that we all live under yeah it's 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 good to be angry about a lot of that um but you mentioned you know well while it itself when you when you were there two two months after the event didn't raise yet to the level of, of myth but like this story this you know typology of story has become a you know a, a, a bit of it has its own myth and theme themes and reoccurring themes and a lot of in nuclear weapon stories and popular culture i had a couple you know things we've we even talked about on this podcast you know there's episodes of tv that really dive into this a really famous episode of the twilight zone about a family who is mocked for building a, a shelter but then there's a story about it and a, an alert on conrad there's an incoming attack and the this person is excited that they have a shelter but now all of their neighbors who were just a minute ago like making fun of this individual uh, are now trying to basically like 
tear down the door so they can get inside. And it says at the very end of it, spoiler warning, um, there was no, it was a false alarm. But now these families are like, oh, well, we'll, we'll see you on Tuesday for Bridge after they had like tore down the door to the shelter. Like this thing, you know, even more recent episodes of TV shows like the Mad- Madam Secretary, uh, we, we did an episode on one of their uh, iterations called Night Watch, which is a false alarm story. And there's the movie Ladybug, Ladybug, and even comedies like Matinee with John Goodman or Blast from the Past with Brendan Fraser. Like those seems to be something that re- gets reoccurring here. And even, uh, I, I don't watch a lot of cop dramas, but the cop drama, the cop show The Rookie with, um, was it Nathan Fillion? Even has an episode called Fallout, which draws on this story, uh, but takes a place in, in Los Angeles. Why do you think that this kind of story, you know, pops pops up so much? Because it really does seem to resonate with people. I think that one of the things that I've learned a lot with, with this podcast is you can't just make a really compelling story that tries to move people on why they need to be concerned about nuclear weapons with unless it also fits the environment that they're in. So like, you know, they have to also understand that this is a concern for them so the film is reflecting concerns and anxieties and interests and not just only by itself trying to motivate individuals this seems to be a bit of a feedback loop though that does seem to pop up so why do you think this seems to be coming up a lot i think in a lot of cases i had to look up some of those i i remember actually watching the twilight zone episode when i was a kid i used to watch that a lot on Mm -hmm. uh nick at night and that was a sort of powerful especially as a as a young kid you know i think the the first answer is kind of that it's just kind of makes a good backdrop that a lot of these films aren't about the event itself. It's not, I haven't seen the rookies episode, but it sounds like that's kind of, you no, know, it's not necessarily about nuclear weapons, not about a false alarm, but it creates really, really <laughs> high stakes for a story. You know, in the case of the shelter, you know, it pushes people into a situation where they they don't behave normally where any almost anything can be justified to stop it or survive through it and the question is like how far, how far are people willing to go and then obviously you know it's always a good story element to add a, a sort of ticking clock which a, a lot of you know bond nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. mission impossibles and whatnot have i thought a lot about this as i was making this film and about how much i wanted to lean on the imagery of you know the mushroom cloud and the the big explosion, you know, I didn't want to exclude it fully, but I wanted to be careful not to overindulge in it. Because I think one of the answers to that question is that the power and fire and fury of nuclear weapons is a is a kind of spectacle. It's uh-huh. of power and, and sometimes, you know, presented in beautiful ways. I can't remember the name of the director, but there was a French director who once said that there's no such thing as an as an anti-war film. Um, because you know, even the even the the most strident anti-war films end up showing you know the camaraderie and it may, they may say war is hell, but it's like a hell that we go through together or, or people have discovered something through. And so I think that that's a really challenging. You know, I don't I don't know if I strictly believe that that's that there's no such thing as an anti-war film or there's no such thing as an anti-nuclear weapons film about nuclear weapons but i think it's a challenge that anybody who's trying to tell stories about this needs to take seriously in order to not indulge just in the spectacle and ask kind of what the the emotional takeaway is in addition to the overlay of of an anti-war or an anti-nuclear weapons film i mean i think i think another answer too about why these stories are keep coming up is what else can we do? I think there's a real cultural sense that 
we're kind of stuck with these weapons hanging over our heads and we have to sublimate that fear and uncertainty into into something and maybe you know part of the reason why it's uh maybe less prevalent today than it was in during the cold war is it it feels less urgent although i I tried to use the film or the event like false alarm to show that it really isn't and uh i mean there's just so many accidents that have happened around nuclear weapons in in the history of them that it's it's uh you know, even if it isn't the rule that there's going to be accidents around nuclear weapons, there's just so many of them. And Mm -hmm. we've had them for so long, the potential disaster from even a single accident is so great that it's, I don't know, (laughs) it's it's It's, very scary. Even if the likelihood is is less than 1%, when it does eventually land on that, it's not going to be good. Yeah. And you mentioned the number of like, uh, false alarms or, uh, potential accidents is just you know we we talk about this in the podcast all the time it's it's staggering we talk about broken arrow events um where there was almost an accidental detonation or you get into the oh yeah well we have this system in place in hawaii and if you if you just make sure you don't click the right button or if you say the right words you'll be perfectly fine and there won't be this false alert that gets sent out i mean the same kinds of stuff happened during the cold war all the time where uh, literally almost a similar story is like there was a, a cassette tape is i think you know about the story like there was a cassette tape uh, that was a training disc for people who ran early warning systems and they were meant to run that test that day um and they left the deck in for the next day and uh when they forgot that it was in there people came to work and saw oh wait wow there's uh incoming missiles because they were running the drill and they didn't know that. And it took a lot of patience and, and really people not following the proper procedure to hold off and say, does this actually look accurate? Or a microchip that broke and started to show instead of zero incoming missiles, they said there were 200, you know, those kinds of things. There's so many examples of that. And I think part of the reason why this story keeps popping up so much is that people have lived through various moments of this in their life, whether it was public or it came out a little bit later. It seems like every generation gets to have its false alarm situation. I know that um, like in the, in the, towards the end of the Nixon presidency, his advisors were kind of actively trying to keep the nuclear codes away from him that, because, you know, the reality, which I don't think a lot of people realize, but there's no handprint uh-huh. scanner or iris scanner or some kind of big technological thing that intervenes to allow cooler heads to prevail. Ultimately, the whole system is set up so that if the president makes a phone call in the middle of the night and they're drunk or delirious or having a bad dream or having a psychotic break, which are things that happen to people under immense stress like the presidency, Uh if they call a nuclear strike, the whole system is set up to prevent anyone from interfering with that direct order. And every time that there has been an an averted accident, it's kind of that's the exception to the rule, <laughs> the yeah. exception to the whole system, the way it's set up to to work. Well, one one thing I really liked about the movie is that um, it you know tells people's reactions to things like this, and um, you know gets into a little bit about the maybe some suggestions or at least people need to think about this a little bit further. It also does connect the fact that this is not even for Hawaii an isolated incident. Like you can talk about you know Pearl Harbor. As as you know, being encoded in the DNA for people that have been living there since then, or families since then, but you uh, you use a lot of imagery from from bomb testing, conventional bomb testing that w- that was done in, in Hawaii in this place, you know, Smuggler's Cove. Um, I I can't pronounce my Hawaiian uh, is pretty bad, but Kalo Olahua Way Island. Hawaiian's actually one of the easiest languages to pronounce once you learn it. It's uh, 
it's like a, a good candidate for a sort of universal language. I'll need to pick up on that because I'm pretty- Yeah, yeah. There's a Duolingo for it if you're interested. <laughs> I, I need it. But but essentially, you, you use this imagery from this like 1965 test series, which was done uh, by the Defense Atomic Support Agency. It was an effects test. It was one of those things that you know, we've talked about in the podcast a lot about the um, teapot series, which was, you know, put a, a building out in, in Nevada and do a nuclear test nearby and see what the building does. Turns out it destroys it. But, you know, they would do these conventional tests that would simulate, I think it was around like 500 tons of conventional TNT, uh, which was similar to one kiloton of a nuclear detonation, and they wanted to see what would happen to vessels and boats and some derelict older ships, some new ships that just came off the, the, the shipyard. You know, they did all these tests, and you use imagery from this, like a really striking image of a conventional explosive, like set up like a dome structure on this beautiful beach with some ships out in the distance, and then they detonate this thing, and they have to do this conventionally because um, a few years before there was the limited test ban treaty that prohibited nuclear tests in the atmosphere. It's fascinating because there's this continual connection here and you think, well, that's 1963 or 65, you know, not a problem anymore. But this seemed to persist for years and years for the people who, to this to this island, for them, you know, some of the individuals you showcased in the movie, like this was like a holy area for them, a land that was just, you know, detonated for years. And there took, you know, really long time and hundreds of millions of dollars for eventually, and lots of protests, it seems like, to eventually stop this testing here return the land back officially to the state and then to find millions of pieces of I guess, unexploded and exploded ordinances and all of this. So it's like this scar that continues to remain. So I can only imagine that for these individuals, some of them that experienced this and how, especially how they experienced this false alarm and it then kind of got, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll move on from there. This just seemed to be a part of this larger mission, uh, larger experience that they've been having. Did that come across a little bit in terms of some of the people you interviewed some of the connections are, are made pretty explicitly in the film. You know, Hawaii has been turned into, like I mentioned earlier, this sort of fortress island in the yeah. Pacific for the U.S. military. Every branch is there. I think a lot of people think of it as sort of a Navy base, but, you know, it's the center of Pacific Command where strategy for half the globe is planned and acted on. The sa- sailor hat testing, is that what it was? Right. Yeah. yeah, that sailor hat testing that I included a clip of in the film was a more visually obvious version of that the ways that the island has been treated by the military the whole island you know was just taken from indigenous hawaiians i think that's sort of not a not a news story of, for those of us that live in the united states but there's a much more recent history of that being taken and there's a much greater proportion of indigenous Hawaiians still living in Hawaii and still maintaining a lot of those cultural practices than a lot of other places, not everywhere, but a lot of other places in the United States. The point that the film tries to, to make is that these places where these te- this tests happen, where the military kind of takes this land and stores their oil under a mountain that leaches into water supplies in Hawaii and, you know, all these other places that these are people's homes or they are people's, you know, these places that people take care of and and get sustenance from, you know, even Rex Tillerson didn't want fracking happening by his kid's school. (laughs) A lot of people will roll your eyes when you say that, you know, every mountain or valley or or plain or prairie is, is somebody's home or sacred place. 
you know, there's a real practical truth to that. There, <laughs> there are people living there and taking care of these things. And, and, you know, a lot of this testing can just erase hundreds of years of work that people and the environment that they're working with have put into, you know, growing fertile places for food and for fun and all sorts of things. So I tried to stand on its head, this idea that these hard things, this military testing, this like oil, you know, above the water supply, this plutonium in Rocky Flats in Colorado, Uh um, These are like hard, necessary things that practical people need to do to keep order from the chaos of the world and and kind of suggest that the the chaos is coming from from these short sighted, destructive practices and the and the practical people, the orderly people are the ones who are thinking about how do we repair these harms and how do we like continue to care for the land and how do we prevent this kind of testing from happening because you know with climate change i think that's uh much more clear why that needs to happen but even well before that the 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 current nuclear test site the nevada test site has its origins as part of land that once belonged to the western Shoshone and uh the the amount of uranium mining um taking place on on land that was once indigenous this seems to be a reoccurring theme i'm sure it's not just in the nuclear space it's in pretty much in a lot of different parts of various countries history it doesn't get brought up a lot when we start thinking about well maybe we should resume testing because of of china or north korea or something maybe we should get back to nuclear testing we haven't done that since 92 maybe we should get into it it rarely comes up but where and why and who is being affected other than the how does this um affect the international you know security space Um, It's important for people to continue to remember that the nuclear fuel cycle, even if you think it's something that's a a necessity that you need, it has a significant collateral damage. And in some ways to those individuals who are being affected by it, when you say, well, this is to prevent nuclear war, it's to prevent violence from an atomic scale. To them, it's like, but the war is happening. It has been happening to us for a while. From our perspective, you know, this is what this is how we're affected by this. And the film really tries to collapse like you were saying before, you know, this historical stuff, this stuff that happened in the 60s and suggest that it's not, this isn't stuff that's just happening in the past and Mm -hmm. we all need to kind of remember it with a tear in our eye. This is, we still live under the threat of nuclear Armageddon. The Navajo lands in the Southwest are still being mined for uranium. Hawaiian people are living there still and are still fighting to like keep the land that they have to take care of it and to repair and take back the land that the military has damaged or destroyed in a lot of cases. And so I really wanted to use historical footage, but not for the purpose of kind of just looking at history, but first for comparing and contrasting to the present and trying to collapse that. Those black and white videos might look old, but it's still happening. It's recent history. And when we show a black and white movie and discuss it on the podcast, like if we we watch let's say Failsafe, which is this excellent movie that came around at the same time as Dr. Strangelove, and it's about, you know, potential inadvertent nuclear war. Like these aren't, the lesson is not, wow, okay, well, this is really great, but now that we have colored movies and stuff, we don't have that problem anymore. Well, the problem has like changed, but some of the fundamentals are still there. And, and it's always not the intention is to be like scared and show you the imagery and, and say, well, you, you just be scared. Uh, about it. It's always hopefully in the idea of, well, it's something that you want to be able to motivate you to to recognize the danger and then provide you some outlets to change it. And, and that's something that I hope that um, people take away, you know, from your film. But, you know, this is your film. Um, what would you like the, if you wanted a legacy for your film and kind of the reactions that you were hoping for, 
film. I know it was uh, pretty well received by the non-proliferation arms control community. We've had a couple different screenings and things. Anything surprise you from that or anything else you want your legacy to be and reactions from your film? Yeah, I I hope people are able to take away the the stories that all these individuals had from it. I hope they find it moving and I hope they come away with empathy for the complexities of people's reactions that they experienced and the ways that they chose to deal with it and try and find agency over this big, scary, ineffable thing like nuclear weapons. Obviously, I hope people also come away with an understanding of the simplicity, I think, of what to do about nuclear weapons which is to get rid of as many of them as we can, as quickly as we can. There's obvious complexities in that answer, but it's it's simple to start. <laughs> and we haven't even done that. Obviously, I think like we talked about earlier, we also need a lot more checks on presidential authority to launch nuclear weapons. I think Donald Trump is a great example of someone that most sane people don't want in charge of a nuclear arsenal. But the history of every president's interactions and thoughts around using or not using nuclear weapons is one that will give you nightmares. So I, (laughs) you know, Find your favorite president and they they probably have had some scary thoughts about using nuclear weapons. The thing that always gets me on that is I love Martin Sheen. I love Martin Sheen as President Jed Bartlett, but he has the movie where he plays an insane senator who um, in a future world, it's the movie The Dead Zone with Christopher Walken. And in a scene of, because Christopher Walken has powers to see the future, when he shakes someone's hands, he shakes the senator's hand and he sees what you basically described earlier, a biometric you know, handprint on the nuclear football and he orders missiles because he's divine sense that it's his goal is to attack the world with nuclear weapons. You're insane. I won't. Do it. Put your hand on a scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. As what? The world's greatest mass murderers? You cowardly bastard! You're not the voice of the people! I am the voice of the people! The people speak through me, not you! It came to me while I slept, Sonny. My destiny. In the middle of the night, it came to me. I must get up now, right now, and fulfill my destiny! Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you! Do it! My destiny. This is not necessary, Mr. President. We have a diplomatic solution. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Secretary, the missiles are flying. And it's clearly insane. And I'm like, well, you know, if Martin Sheen can go crazy and attack the world with nuclear weapons, I, as much as I love Joe Biden and met my wife working for him, maybe I still don't want him to have that ability to do so without some sort of checks and balances uh, in place. So that's certainly a good message to be received. This is my first feature documentary. And I think I tried to include my own story of learning in the film. And I hope that resonates with people to because, I, you know, I went to Hawaii to tell a certain story. And I ended up telling a different one, similar, you know, had a lot of overlap, but had a lot more complexity and a lot more information than when I came into it. And I think, uh, I hope that learning in public is something that can allow other people to find, you know, learn and, and evolve and hopefully inspire people to think and read and learn more about all these subjects because this, it's a, it's a, you know, 40 minute film and there's a lot, there's a lot to it. (laughs) Well, in service of that 
mission. I have some recommendations and I think you do as well for people if they want to explore this topic a little bit more. You know, my first recommendation is, is going to be obvious. It's watch the documentary False Alarm from 2021. Uh, it's pretty good. It's available for streaming on, on Vimeo starting November 1st, 2021 for one month. You know, it's $2.99. I think you sent me a, a coupon to watch it. I, I'm going to ignore your coupon and I'm going to buy it myself uh, because it is really worth it for the, what you get into. It's a great look at this. It's one of the, particularly the reality actions from people um, that were visiting, people that were uh, activists that have been there for a long time, the state representatives. And the quality of that is nowhere else that I've seen. Secondly, I check out our old podcast episode on Ladybug, Ladybug. We get into at least some immediate reactions there. Uh, we had some people that messaged us like while it was happening. Um, a, a gentleman named Terrence who was a, I think he had a wedding. I couldn't remember a family wedding or a friend wedding that day that was supposed to take place that morning. And they ended up having to hunker down and delay the wedding a bit down in the basement because they were concerned this was going to happen. It's, a, it's amazing that how far this really hit people. And then finally, you know, we talked about some of the TikTok of what happened. I'll recommend two articles on that. One is called Pandemonia and Rage in Hawaii by the, in the Atlantic. And another article, The Real Story of the Hawaiian Missile Crisis in GQ. Both of those are right around like April, January of that year. Interesting TikTok stuff, but you're not going to get this level of detail um, you would get in the false alarm story. So definitely people, people should check that out. But for what about you, Nick? You definitely did research on this and talked to a lot of people. Anything else that you would recommend people look into um, if they want to learn more or kind of continue on uh, based on what they would find in your movie? Yeah, I, I think one one material that helped me do a lot of research was a book called A Nation Rising, which is a collection of essays about Hawaiian indigeneity and resistance and struggle and, and the history of that and the continuing contemporaneity of that. I think there's a great documentary called The Bomb uh, that goes into, has really great access to archival footage. You know, I did a lot of archival footage and I'm always, <laughs> I have a lot more respect for people who make a film that really digs deep into excellent archival footage because it's a lot of work and you have to watch a lot of uh, <laughs> trash to find the treasure. <laughs> There's another documentary that I watched that was very inspiring. It's called Noho Hewa, N-O-H-O-H-E-W-A. And that was a great, great short documentary about militarism in Hawaii. And then, yeah, I think hopefully the lesson of the film is, is to not just read and watch and learn, but to, to learn by doing and, and finding other people who are trying to engage and fix your local communities. And I think that's a it's another great recommendation. It's a recommendation that whether it was nuclear related or not, it's just a good one to live your life by. I love it. Nick, thank you so much for, for coming on, on the podcast, talking about your film and kind of what everything that went into it. Even as someone who watched the film twice now, I'm motivated to watch it a third time to get back into it and see it from that perspective. So thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you and, and some of your other work? I, I know on Twitter, the movie's at, at False Alarm Film and as well as FalseAlarmFilm.com. But anything else that people can, if they like what they see in False Alarm, they can follow your career moving forward? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, FalseAlarmFilm.com is, you can find links to Vimeo On Demand and any future streaming opportunities that uh, hopefully will be available soon. I think I'm also a member of an artist collective called uh, Solar Punk Surf Club, and we're, we're currently working on a utopian storytelling tabletop game that I'm very excited about, and I think hopefully people will find exciting as well. Future films will, will probably be made under that 
uh, artist collective as well. That is so cool. Uh, once I, you have more information on that, I definitely want to share that. Um, that is very cool. Well, thanks again, Nick, for for popping on here and talking about your film and and for the work that you put together on this. I'm sure it was not, even though Hawaii is nice, um, it's not always. Uh, it's a lot of work to to do something like this. So thank you for putting in all of that work and to the entirety of your team uh, that was involved in this. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong or what I got wrong, um, either nuke-wise or how terrible my pronunciation was of various things in Hawaiian, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Um, I am on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And I've got a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we put in all kinds of show notes, the resources that went into making of this podcast. Uh, so we'll put up all of that great stuff, including the recommendations that Nick had for us today. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Nick Lyell. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Or aloha. <laughs> <laughs>